This is Ed Mazur, chairman of the City Club of Chicago. Our speaker today was Congressman Mike Quigley, who is beginning his seventh term representing Illinois' 5th District. Mike is a member of the House Committee on Appropriations. He serves as chair of the Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government. In 2015, Mike Quigley was appointed by Speaker Nancy Pelosi to serve on the influential House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He brings to the committee and to the community and to us today a unique understanding of the national security challenges that we face. Congressman Quigley talked about the January 6th insurrection, and he said we will learn over time what intelligence agencies the Congress and the public must do to keep the House of the People open. He said he's convinced that after talking with the head of the FBI just the other day, Domestic terrorism currently is more of a threat to citizens of the United States than is foreign terrorism. He said we need a better, larger, more trained, equipped capital police force that will provide us with greater protection in the future. We need this in order to make what he called functioning democracy safe. He stated very clearly that Former President Donald Trump incited the January 6th activities and that he must be held responsible. A number of interesting questions were fielded by the congressman. These include the redefining of North Lakeshore Drive, new infrastructure projects, the return, if possible, of politics to a middle road and bipartisanship. You will hear Congressman Quigley talk about the upcoming redistricting, the lack of adequate staffing of the Internal Revenue Service, transportation issues related to certain of the Biden proposals, and then Congressman Quigley informed me that he had to leave immediately because there was a meeting of the Worldwide Threat Assessment uh, House and various intelligence officers that is closed to the public. So we wished him well and a most interesting session with Congressman Michael Quigley of Illinois' 5th Congressional District. Good morning, everybody. I'm Edward Major, Chairman of the City Club of Chicago. Welcome to our program this morning. Our speaker will be the 5th District Congressman from the state of Illinois, Mike Quigley, who is beginning his seventh term representing the citizens of the 5th District in the United States Congress. Prior to his being a member of the United States House of Representatives, Congressman Quigley was a Cook County Commissioner. And prior to that, he was involved in all sorts of community services in the Lakewood neighborhood. He's taken time from his very busy schedule in Washington, D.C. this morning to join with us and bring us up to date on some of the issues that confront Congressman Quigley. Congressman Quigley is a member of the House Committee on Appropriations, and he has used his position to prioritize investments in innovation and Chicago area infrastructure, which help grow our local economy and spur job creation. Mike Quigley currently serves as the chair of the Subcommittee on Financial Services 
and general government. In 2015, he was appointed by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to serve on the influential House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligent, representing Chicago. Mike brings to the committee a very unique understanding of the national security challenges we face, and he has championed many policies that keep America safe. Congressman Quigley is one of the co-founders and co-chair of the Bipartisan Congressional Transparency Caucus, where he has introduced landmark legislation that significantly strengthens oversight at all branches of the federal government. And he utilizes 21st century technology to expand public access to information. Congressman Quigley is a leader on many of our nation's most challenging and significant issues. Among many, he continues to fight for full LGBT equality as vice chair of the LGBT Equality Caucus, as well as a woman's right to choose and common sense gun law reforms that will make our communities safer. We want to thank the congressman for joining us, and we want to thank our sponsor today, Patrick Cermak, for contributing to this program. Congressman Quigley, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ed. It's great to be back. Uh, speaking to the City Club is always a highlight of the year. Uh, I am also missing my uh, Italian dinner that usually came before. I just finished dessert and ready to go, but uh, this will have to do. Um, yeah, and I think the in-person stuff is what we really miss. Uh, I was telling my staff the other day that going to community meetings again, we're starting to see it happen, Earth Day events starting to happen. Uh, you miss the human touch, whether someone pats you on the back saying you're doing a great job or pokes you in the chest and says you're doing a horrible job. At this point, I'll, I'll take any of it just because it, it's tough. Uh, and, of course, due to that, we have to recognize, of course, that uh, we're probably going to be close to 600,000 deaths before this pandemic is, is over. And uh, uh, that's an extraordinary magnitude. Uh, it was mentioned today that's already a greater number than was lost by Americans in the First World War and the Second World War. And uh, we're going to end up with numbers similar to this, the Civil War. So for anyone who's experienced such a loss, our thoughts are with you today. And I, I look back and I thought about, as a county commissioner and as a member of Congress, the things I've talked about with you and what to talk about today. Uh, I talked to you about government reform, reinventing government, national security, China, uh, and legislative updates. It's really hard to think of this last year and just think of it in terms of an update, right? I mean, a once in a century pandemic, um, uh, an election that's really going to transform this country, the, the dramatic difference between the two people running, the care packages, the rescue packages that we've passed in the meantime, uh, the normal domestic and foreign threats uh, and actions that have taken place in our country. And of course, the insurrection. Uh, and to paraphrase the line from Hamilton, yes, you know, I was in the room where some of that happened. So uh, it's one of the things I want to talk about today. It's hard to get past that, not just because of his, its historical significance, but because of its political importance and the threat that exists in our country. Uh, I just left a 
an open hearing with uh, leaders of the intelligence community. And I'm going to have to leave a little before the top of the hour to go to a classified version of that. One of the things that uh, FBI Director Ray has informed us in, in recent uh, days has been that there is now a greater danger of domestic terrorism than those from foreign threats. Uh, be of mind that we are probably just proportionally spending money at this time and resources on those foreign threats. So I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about that day. Because uh, for all of us, even those not there, it was probably the greatest threat to our Constitution. Um, since the founding of the Republic, uh, the United States building was ransacked, looted, occupied for the first time since the War of 1812. Uh, an angry mob threatened them. I just want folks to think about this. Number two, three, and four in succession. Right? If you're going to have a coup, they were all within feet of each other. Uh, and the risk was, was real. Well, a police officer was murdered. Several others died since that day, and 140 officers were injured by the mob. Uh, this was a domestic attack, domestic attack uh, on a scale. Not, we haven't had anything like this, I sus suspect, since the Oklahoma City bombing, which was more than 25 years ago. So typically when you talk about a story like this, you say it, it began as just a normal day. You know, nothing. Nothing at all normal about this. You know, and for me, it was the night before. I rode my bike to the Capitol uh, out of curiosity, and then I walked around with my bike. And even then, you could see and could tell who was there uh, by what they wore and what they were saying. Uh, they were all wearing uh, Trump paraphernalia, and they were talking about you know, lynching the vice president of the United States and shooting the, the Speaker of the House. And, and threatening members and kidnapping them. It was all, you know, it was all within earshot of Capitol Police. So put yourself in my place. Your assumption is they hear this. They know there's a threat, right? Um, so move to the next day. And pretty much I did pretty much the same thing that morning. But obviously the crowds were, were much larger, incredibly even more angry. I looked out over the East Capitol steps and I saw someone, a gentleman speaking to a, a pretty large crowd. This wasn't the big crowd by the eclipse. This was a pretty large crowd on the other side of the Capitol. And he was, if you just watched his mannerisms, he looked like a minister speaking to the flock, but he was angry and he was advocating something. And he got closer, he, he was advocating attacking the Capitol. Uh, and again, within earshot. So I went back into my office and uh, talked to my staff about it. And about that time, uh, before the debate began on the Electoral College, it was, was going to be challenged, um, the president arrived at the demonstration and uh, was going to speak. Now, not every station had his uh, audio on. And I finally flipped it. And ironically, I think it was OAN or whatever they call this station. And you could hear the president speak. I got to tell you, people have taken that out of context. But if you were in the moment and you were there and then you saw the president speak, it was very obvious. I said, I said, oh, um, 
And then, you know, the debate was supposed to start, uh, you know, somewhat like one-ish or two o'clock. I went over by there to, uh, to join a joint session of Congress to do what was, again, a ceremonial opening electoral college. And uh, I looked one last time over the East Capitol steps and saw a huge crowd, and I saw three Capitol police officers, none of them with riot gear, none of them with Kevlar helmets or masks or what have you. And uh, I text a couple of my staff, we're not ready for this. We don't have enough security. So I entered the chambers, and again, it was a joint session, but not as large as a normal joint session because of COVID, we were going to break up. And since I wasn't going to be part of the first state's debate, uh, they asked some of us to go up in the balcony, which is kind of a, a, a rough choice as it turns out. You know, you go forward about an hour, hour and a half in the debate. The first sense, if you remember, that something was wrong, something was different, was that they came and they whisked leadership off the floor, uh, Democrat and Republican, uh, McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and others. What we didn't know at this time was that uh, the Capitol had been attacked and they were already, they had already evacuated the Senate. And for reasons that defy description, uh, they did not evacuate the House immediately. Mr. McGovern took the podium and uh, the debate continued, just oblivious to the threat that existed. And a short time later, Mr. McGovern interrupted the debate and said, uh, he informed us that the Capitol had been breached and the protesters were in statutory hall, which is, for those of you who have been here, six feet from the House floor. And then he instructed us that uh, tear gas had been uh, sprayed and that we should get our gas mask on. Now, tear gas mask on. Now, everyone said, what tear gas mask? Turns out there's one under every seat. Little did we know. Uh, not having had one on for over 40 years, this was a challenge, and for many, it wasn't going to happen. <clears throat> um, at that point, they were evacuating the House floor. Not everyone left. The problem, uh, as we had moved up in the balcony to space out, is that we were we were trapped. So then, then you know, you start to recognize there's a very real threat here. You could hear bangs, you could hear shouts, you could hear breaking glass. Uh, and, you know, for whatever reason, I was I actually got on a phone call with WGN television. So a lot of this could be recounted just watching the tape. Why you do that, you never know. You know, it's hard to explain what you're doing in circumstances like that. I was asked later, were you afraid? And I, I I don't remember being afraid. I don't remember thinking I was brave. You're just reacting in time to what's taking place and what you need to do. Uh, I do remember being really, really angry. Somebody that wasn't told was uh, when it really broke, I heard some of my colleagues yelling at the Republicans, you know, you did this. You, this is your fault, which was the beginning, I guess, of uh, a deeper rift that exists within us now. And I remember also hearing a gunshot to my left, which would have been the speaker's lobby. And what I didn't know was that was when uh, one of the protesters attempted to enter the speaker's lobby and she was shot and killed. I, I can't tell you that we knew the exact scope of the threat while this was going on. 
you could see and the fact that they were telling us to get down below our seats to avoid line of sight indicates there was a real danger. But, uh, you know, I suspect it would have been a lot different had we been able to see the video from all over the Capitol of what was taking place and the way the police were being, uh, you know, horribly abused. So at some point they moved us out to the far other side of the uh, balcony. And uh, I heard a police officer say, we got to go. We got to make a run for it. And one was questioning if it was safe enough. But there we went. And I could see to my right as we left prone protesters with guns drawn on them. And they sent us, a small group of us, down a stairway that I had not been down before. And then we lost the police. So it was striking. Um, the evacuation, unfortunately, didn't go all that well. I was in the front, and we didn't know what door to open, right? Which, which, how far down do you go? Where's our safe hiding place? And I remember thinking, um, which, which door has the tiger behind it? The, the old parable that uh, we read as kids. Uh, we finally, I just decided to go down to the last door and went to our left. And I remember walking with a member who had a cane because she had had surgery. And she said, uh, I don't want to slow you down so that they catch up with us. And I remember Brad Schneider and I, you know, walking with her. I said, we're going to stay with you, but I may, I may need to borrow that cane. Um, and we got to our hiding place. And let me tell you something that struck me as I look back at this and put this in the bigger perspective of why this telling of the story matters. I remember doing a radio uh, hit while we were in this hiding place, uh, secure place. And I said, what do you suppose it tells the rest of the world that I have to secure a place while I wait for the National Guard so I can go vote for a, a peaceful transfer of power. Um, but as I look back and I think about this, you know, January 6th was a culmination, right? For weeks, the president had talked about this. He had spread the big lie about the election. He had incited them, uh, talked about coming to D.C. and what they should do. So, you know, while the events of January 6th were shocking, in the end, they shouldn't have been a surprise. And uh, we're going to learn in the weeks and months to come just why there were intelligence failures and, uh, you know, what we still need to do. And that's part of what I want to talk about. And I do want to leave a lot of time for, for questions for this. Um, where do we go from here? You know, Ed and I were talking before this discussion began and what do we need to do to protect the Capitol first, right? I got to tell you, um, while I was up there, I heard one of my colleagues say when they broke the glass, and you've seen that photograph of the doors that the President of the United States comes in to give the State of the Union address. And all keeping us from the mob was uh, like bookcases and chairs and stray furniture, just beyond belief, and guns drawn. And when the guns, when they broke through the glass, I heard a member say, you know, where's the effing cavalry? Um, indeed, at that point, there was no cavalry. But you could pretty much figure out, sitting up in that balcony at that point, what we needed to do, right? I had seen that they had used bicycle racks 
as protective barriers around the Capitol. Police officers didn't have, uh, uh, clearly most of them didn't have the protective equipment, but we need, we knew then we needed a, a larger police force, better trained, better equipped. There's a report that came out today that details this, but you could tell it that day. And the videos are extremely hard to watch of those officers and their heroic efforts to keep us safe, ill-prepared, ill-trained, ill-equipped, outnumbered, uh, without a protective barrier. And I know no one wants an ugly fence around the, the Congress for all time, but the tragic death of yet another officer at the barricade a, a week ago you know, most likely would not have taken place had there been another additional barrier beyond that. So we've got to get the security down before we think about aesthetics. Aesthetics matter. The fact that this is the people's house and people should be free to get here matters. But we have to make this functioning democracy safe um, because that has extraordinary value. We also need better communication, better coordination, better intel. And we need a we need an understanding with the National Guard. And you've read about the investigations will go into greater detail. Just what happened with the National Guard and the tragic delays that took place. Uh, it's also an argument for D.C. statehood, because usually governors can just call out the National Guard. That wasn't allowed to happen, had to go through the Pentagon and, and again, Hours were lost and lives were put at risk. Our country was put at risk as a, as a result of that. Um, and again, there were intelligence failures. Um, <clears throat> we're going to get to the root of that. I think the larger issue here is the fact that we need to have a, a greater mindset focused on domestic terrorism and its threats, whatever the motivations. Um, but clearly, the the president inciting this is the reason it happened. And the president has to be held accountable and anyone else who was involved. Uh, I just have to read this statistic, though, that uh, bothers me. Early this month, new polling revealed that 55 percent of the Republicans today believe the riot was started by, quote, violent left wing protesters trying to make President Trump look bad. Fifty-five percent. Uh, what else do uh, we need to do? Um, you know, once once this happened, many of our colleagues on the other side of the aisle went from denouncing the hatred espoused by uh, President Trump with his candidacy, who seemed doomed to fail, to in a sense grinning and bearing it, or even amplifying it when uh, his political pace, his political base became, in their minds, indispensable to their re-election. And there, it was a quick jump from parodying extremist conspiracy theories and promoting misinformation. Uh, that became an easy jump to make. Um, you know, and I recognize that many of my colleagues spoke at the rally, text, talked about that, gave them fist bumps. Uh, there will be an investigation. I know that the Justice Department seems to be looking at this as far as whether there was greater involvement by my colleagues prior to this, um, and they seem to be less focused on this than other activities that took place across this country. I am as concerned as anyone with any violence that takes place in this country, uh, but to diminish 
the impact of what took place on January 6th is a, is a real mistake. Uh, this has to be bipartisan, the final analysis. Um, I often say what best get, what's, gets done best in this country and this government gets done in the middle. A consensus, uh, is growing that initiatives that harness our governments and unique ability to step in and improve people's lives in times of crisis. That has to happen on a bipartisan basis. That consensus, uh, on issues that really matter should be what's driving the force behind the bipartisan policy making in Congress. Uh, beyond Congress and OM, we need to move away from the us versus them paradigm, uh, obviously driven pretty dramatically by President Trump. Um, so, you know, what can do that? And, and I think one of the obvious ones is infrastructure. Uh, this could be the subject of a whole other address, folks, what we need to do to rebuild our country. But I'll remind everyone who says, well, you know, look, we're in an economic downturn. Can we afford this? In the midst of the depression, we dreamed big and built bigger, right? This was an extraordinary time. It, it was then viewed as it should be as an investment, uh, not just an expenditure. Um, how many of us who were on this call sent their kids to schools and park facilities that are 75 to 100 years old? I would just say, if not now, when? You know, I get it. Our nation has always been polarized uh, from the days of Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun. Uh, we're still there, but we can't continue the hate and the misinformation that's been spread for political gain that uh, really moves extremism and violence. We need to invest in bringing each other together. Uh, you know, my staff told me the best way to describe it, and I, I just have to give them credit, is think about it as moral infrastructure. So we need to build our infrastructure at the same, our physical infrastructure at the same time we rebuild our moral infrastructure. Um, and as, as we see the lie at the end of the pandemic, we have a chance to aspire about what our country needs to be. It's going to take all of us Democrats and Republicans alike to really rally together and end the scourge of misinformation and extremism that have become a stain on our country. Um, I think it's going to take courage at time to do that, but uh, uh, we have to do this. So we have to use January 6th. Uh, those that lost their lives and the risk that took place can't be in vain. It has to be for some greater good. So uh, as always, it's a pleasure to join the City Club again this year. I want to thank you for letting me uh, speak to you. I wanted to give you plenty of time to ask questions. Um, so it's, I guess it's time to stump the congressman. Congressman, we have a question from one of your constituents here, someone whom you're familiar with, Chester Krapodlowski, very active with Lakeview Citizens Groups. And he sends us this question from Diversity Harbor, where he's probably perch fishing. He wants to know about the North Lakeshore Drive refining, redefining the drive project. Will it be a candidate for new infrastructure bill monies? You know, when, when I've talked about the infrastructure bill with the governor, the mayor, uh, the county board president, our great state reps and state senators, aldermen, county commissioners, and, and, and the public, I tell folks, don't think about small things. Resurfacing streets is important, 
but they're going to have to be resurfaced again in three to four years. We've got to think transformative. We've got to think Lakeshore Drive. You've got to think uh, rebuilding our lakeshore because of the ravages of climate change. This is a maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change the face of not just Chicago, but the region and the whole country. One of the reasons you've got to think like this is it makes us economically competitive with uh, our rivals, India, uh, China, Europe, just as just as a few examples. They're out spending us three to one, four to one, five to one on infrastructure. And they're using this to be competitively, <coughs> have a competitive, competitive economic advantage against us. <coughs> so when we think of this, think transformative, think what's going to change the face of our country and what is it? that's going to take the stress off of state and local governments uh, financially. So, uh, and what's going to uh, help us address climate change? What's going to help us meet? The pandemic reflected to all of us the fact that uh, there's a great divide uh, of haves and have-nots in our country. So let's rebuild, uh, uh, let's, let's end the digital divide in this country. Let's rebuild the grid system in this country. So again, we don't have the disasters as we did in Texas. And we can do so in an efficient manager to address climate change. So don't think small, think big, think about the things that are going to take us uh, into the next century, not the last century. Thank you. Congressman, we have a question here from City Club member Sheila Weinberg with Truth in Accounting. The question is, your House Oversight Committee has jurisdiction over the Governmental Accounting Standards Board. It uses its standards to prepare its budget. Should the committee review standards that have allowed it to claim, that have allowed Illinois, excuse me, to claim balanced budgets while going over $200 billion in debt? Your thoughts on this matter, Congressman? Yeah, I got. I think I got most of it. Look, and let me talk about the state of local, state of local and state governments nationally, and what we're trying to do. Um, I see my job on appropriations as drawing resources back to take some of the economic pressure off of state and local governments. You know, I heard Mitch McConnell say that Illinois and the blue states. It's a blue state bailout. The care and rescue packages we did. Um, you know, and, and I know where Illinois is funded at, but but Kentucky is funded five points below. Couple that with the fact that uh, no state, no local government, and very few businesses have not been absolutely ravaged by the, the COVID and the economic downturn that came from it. So I want states, particularly my state, to operate the most efficient po- way possible. But I see my primary function is to take some of that pressure off. When if it comes to some sort of future carrot and stick approach where we encourage states to operate in the most appropriate way possible to help them out with these issues, uh, you know, fine. But for right now, during the middle of a crisis, what I want to have happen is the state, local government to use the money that are, is the most responsible way forward. And I saw Mayor Lightfoot was going to use much of the money she got from the federal government to address that debt that she had to take on due to the COVID, you know, that's fine. Uh, we're getting a very tricky wicket when we start telling 
50 states and thousands of local governments exactly how to use these resources, uh, especially during a crisis. Congressman, this question relates to redistricting. When will redistricting take effect? For which of the upcoming elections will there be new districts? And do you feel that Illinois, which has been mentioned as losing one congressman, but perhaps two, What's your opinion? Will we be down one congressman or two congressmen? Sure. Uh, well, look, I, I, th- I think Illinois is probably uh, going to lose at least one congressional seat. Uh, it's less likely that it loses two, uh, and that change will take place. It should take place where the population decline was most uh, involved, whatever's fair and whatever's proportional. Um, you know, my understanding, the General Assembly is starting to look at these maps now. I don't know if they're going to do their own first. I, I do know that they don't have all of the data they normally would because of the delays. So at some point in time, that information will get to, to them. What's interesting to me in that is um, it is conceivable that uh, they not have all this in time that, could, that might impact the timing of the primary election. Uh, I'm not the one to make that decision. Uh, how that's going to, how this is all going to affect Illinois? Obviously, a loss of a seat is a big loss. Loss of population is significant in terms of federal funding. Uh, the bigger issues of redistricting. Uh, the fact of the matter is, we ought to do this uniformly across the country. We ought to have one way of doing this where. Um, you know, it is judged as extremely fair and not just for political reasons. So um, the Republicans won the majority of the General Assemblies. Uh, we're concerned with how maps are drawn in all 50 states. But uh, the fact that they won the General Assemblies will have some bearing as to how, how those maps are drawn. And frankly, most pundits will tell you, uh, give them an edge in the next congressional uh, elections that take place in two years. So this census will impact the next congressional election. Uh, This question is from Susan Evans, City Club member. She wants to know if the president will ever be held accountable. How do we fix, quote unquote, that 55% of the American public believe the lies over election fraud that led to perhaps the January 6th insurrection? How do we redirect Congress to get back to the center? How do we, is there a future for bipartisanship? Susan Evans feels it's so disconcerting that there is no middle anymore. You know, I, I, I share the concern. The, the middle gets pushed to the sides. In some, in some respects, you know, let's look at the reasons. Uh, I think one of the big reasons that the, that we lose centrist is because the maps are drawn to protect incumbents and incumbents are not worried about general elections for the most part, as much as often, I'm not saying definitively, but as much as often as they are worried about primaries. So they're worried about primaries. They're going to stay on their side. Right. And the, the, the folks that uh, campaign and lobby for interest involving primary elections, they tend to pressure to move folks to to the extremes. A lot of the Republican centrists I used to work 
width are gone and are replaced by uh, farther right centrists. Uh, I'm sorry, farther right members who are just not in the mood to compromise. As I said, when this started, you know, things tend to get done in the middle here. If there's no middle, we have a problem. Um, how do we deal with 55% who believe such things? I think in the end, it deals with misinformation. How we balance looking at how Americans get their information, how the platforms judge this, what is indeed fake news, and how are people educated about that? You know, I was a big part of the Russian investigation um, from day one. And, you know, what struck me was uh, why were the Russians so successful in 2016? Um, in the final analysis, a large part of that has to be attributed to the fact that we were so willing to accept the worst in each other. We were so willing to accept those, all those things that divide us. So the fire was there. They just poured gasoline on it. So in the end, a lot of this is on us. Some of it's civics education, addressing misinformation and, uh, and, and appreciating this. When you look at the last time, this country was so polarized during the Civil War. You know, Lincoln spoke in a reconciliatory manner, right? Uh, in the second inaugural, he talked about with malice toward none, with charity for all. Uh, he referenced the scriptures. He was doing so because he was, what, uh, uh, addressing us in a manner in which we are accustomed to appeal to the better angels of our nature. You don't see a, you don't see a lot of that today. It tends to reinforce those angers that are out there. When I answer that question, when I'm talking to high school students, um, I ask them to read To Kill a Mockingbird, if only because the main character and the theme of uh, what Atticus Finch is trying to say is you have to walk around in the other person's skin for a while to really understand. It's clear that we are not doing that today. This question Congressman, is from Dorothy Green. Dorothy wants to know what you and Congress are prepared to do to protect transgender people in Illinois and the United States as more and more states pass bills that target young transgender Americans. Yeah, and I'm proud to be part of the caucus, uh, one of the co-founders of the caucus to protect the trans community. <clears throat> um, first of all, the House passed the Equality Act, and we've done it twice now. Um, it has to become the law of the land. Part of this has to be education, has to be people speaking out, uh, pushing law enforcement to do the right thing to make sure we address hate crimes at an adequate level. I always felt that the trans community was uh, left behind in the evolution of, of equality. And uh, it's only been recently that I see that the interest is genuinely there to make sure they're part of every forward. So uh, it has to be part of that effort. And passing equality measures in the Senate has to be a priority. And it gets to an issue we haven't touched on, and that's the, the filibuster. Um, uh, I understand the dynamic of people pushing back on getting rid of the filibuster. I think at the very least, and I don't have a vote on it, it must be painful 
Most Americans look at the filibuster and they think of Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's nothing like that. So at the very least, we have to make the filibuster extremely difficult so that legislation can go forward. And I would say the trigger point is this. If we aren't going to be given a chance to have bipartisan assistance on issues like equality and climate change and reasonable gun measures and infrastructure um, from my Republican colleagues, then you really don't have much choice than to move forward on what would be entirely a democratic process of making the filibuster at the very least almost impossible to use. Congressman Quigley, this question is from Joseph Lane. Rather appropriate considering our quarterly estimated taxes are due within a few days on April 17th. Joe's question is, the IRS is quite understaffed. The cost to taxpayers four years ago was reported at $400 billion a year. Perhaps this year as much as a trillion dollars a year. Will anything be done to bring the IRS up to the staffing levels that they should be at? Yeah, it's my committee that funds the IRS, my subcommittee. I chair it. I have tried very hard to dramatically increase those resources out of genuine fairness, right? No one has disputed a couple things, that they're understaffed. And bizarrely, the fact is that people of modest means are more are audited by the IRS more than people who are particularly wealthy. It makes no sense. It should be equal and fair above the board, but they don't have the resources. We've also taxed the IRS with many additional responsibilities, uh, and including tax credits, changes in the tax law, passing out stimulus, and so forth. There's so much more out there. If anything, because of all that, they need additional resources to answer people's questions, to let them understand what the law is, and to enforce this uh, equally. I think the number is closer to a trillion, and that cheats us all. Uh, when we don't, when when people aren't paying their fair share, and we have a tax gap like we do, up to a trillion dollars, we we could be using that money to pay down our debt, to keep us safe, to help. Um, Every American reach opportunities, education, health care, and so forth. So uh, it has to be a priority. I am very pleased to see in the so-called skinny budget that the president released last week that he has dramatically increased the resources made available to the IRS. He will, he will see a willing and uh, friendly, uh, he will have a friendly reception to this from myself and I do believe the Democratic caucus uh, passed that uh, increase out of the House. Congressman, this question is from Lawrence Massal, the head of the Civic Federation of Chicago. He says, thank you, Congressman. Your leadership in helping to secure federal revenue support for states and cities is greatly appreciated. Lawrence asks, will there be any federal incentives to prod Illinois to modernize how it delivers and manages transit and transportation services and how the state and region prioritizes its infrastructure investments. Sure. Uh, look, uh, I'm about to go into a hearing uh, on Intel uh, domestic threats 
But right after that, we're meeting with Secretary, uh, the new Transportation Secretary, and I'm going to encourage him to do just what you say. Uh, and he seems to be ready to go. This has to be transit for the next century, not the last. We've got a lot of challenges here to do what you're talking about, uh, but it's the right thing to do. One is, you know, coming out of COVID, how do we get everybody back into transit? There's work to be done there. It's not going to be easy. But this economy, uh, you know, I saw an editorial about a week ago, in which they questioned whether we'll ever get back to normal on transit. If transit doesn't get back to normal, the economy will never get back to normal. The two go hand in hand. Uh, in a large urban area like this, it, I, I appreciate the fact that more people will be working remotely. But to get this economy full-fledged back in gear, uh, the transit systems have to be operating. And there's a lot of work to be done. What are we, you know, several trillion down nationally on what we have to do there. And I'll make a plug here. There's a longer answer, but we don't have time for it. I'll make a plug here that part of that's going to be renewing the effort for high-speed rail, right? And what this could do for Chicago as the middle of those, uh, you know, of those crosses where you have high-speed rail from Detroit to St. Louis, for example, and farther, and from the Twin Cities through Chicago all the way to Atlanta and even farther. So uh, I, I think we end on an optimistic note. This is the stuff that can transform our country, make us competitive. It can unite us, uh, can grow the economy, and it can do so in which everybody has an opportunity to, to be part of that, not only in the rebuilding, but enjoying the ben benefits of rebuilding you know, as we rebuild and extend the, the red line, for example. So uh, as that's the final question, um, I want to thank you all for having me back. It is indeed an honor to uh, be with you again. I look forward to um, uh, an opportunity to have Italian next time uh, as we go back to in place and people pat me on the back or poke me in the chest. Uh, I miss the human touch. Thank it's you, Congressman. You and thanks, everyone. Congressman Quigley, we really thank you for taking time from your busy schedule. We know that you have a worldwide threat assessment committee meeting within just a few minutes, and you're going to run over there. We want to let you know that hopefully next year when you come back, it will be in person, and you can have that great Italian lunch if we're back at our regular clubhouse, Maggiano's. Thank you very much, and we wish you and your colleagues Nothing but the best.